You take your Bible and turn to Psalm 13. I was sitting there thinking the same thing Rod leaned up and told me. It's almost like we're hearing a, a sermon right now. And it, and it really was. It's obvious that the children are growing in wisdom and knowledge. And we pray that God will bring that to fruition and salvation. We trust that He will. As you're turning, it is Mother's Day. I, th- I thought about... Uh, um, D.A. Carson said that he's preaching on, uh, I mean, excuse me, Kevin DeYoung said he's preaching this morning on tithing and giving on Mother's Day, and uh, I saw a couple other pastors who said what they were preaching on. Not many will be preaching on suffering, I will, and, um, and so in a world that's uh, surrounded with, uh, uh, you know, um, a lot of excitement today and and rightly so and a lot of celebration today and all of that is is good and you should honor your mother not just on Mother's Day but every single day of your life you should honor your mother it's important to remember there are lots of of people who are suffering today it's important to acknowledge that there's a lot of people whose mothers have died in the past year or past few years and today is a remembrance that she's not here there are those who um, have longed for years to be mothers, and God hasn't granted that to them. There are those who will never be able to be moms um, in this life, and, and that time and season has passed them by, and so today is a remembrance of that. And uh, so I just want to acknowledge the pain that some of you may be feeling, and to say that though it is painful, and, and though today is a remembrance of a lot of those things, that you're not alone, and that God loves you, and that you are not made more significant because you have children. He doesn't love you any less or any more based on children. Um, He has provided His Son for you. He has called you His own. And He loves you dearly. And so uh, on today, it's important for us to remember there are lots of people suffering uh, quietly, and reservedly. And so um, it's not inappropriate to preach a sermon on Psalm 13 on Mother's Day, although it may be out of step with the common um, routine. So I want to read this passage to you. Um, The psalm is appropriately entitled, How Long, O Lord? And uh, so let me read this to you. You read along with me. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Let my foe rejoice, lest my foe rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. The sense of abandonment that's expressed and seen in in the world today is, um, is probably not unlike other times. Abandonment is not something Christians like to talk about. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote one of the greatest works on depression from the church. Uh, from a perspective of a pastor who had been a pastor for many years when he wrote the book, who had suffered the weight of depression for many years himself. And even his great work, he doesn't address abandonment. 
He never speaks of it. And, and I don't know exactly what drives that, you know, because uh, I think that abandonment is something we all experience in some form or fashion, in some level. There are those who have had friendships that begin to drift and you kind of sense that it might be coming to an end and it's breaking your heart and there's no way to really seemingly to save that relationship until finally the friend turns from you and actually turns against you. And you feel that sense of loss, that sense of abandonment. Or when a family member becomes sick and then dies or Worse, doesn't die, but just decides they don't want to be a part of your life anymore. And you sense that sense of abandonment. Or marriage that turns cold. And no matter how hard you grasp at it, no matter how hard you work at it, no matter what you do, it seems to plunge deeper and deeper into despair. And finally, it ends. It ends in divorce and abandonment. Even at times, God seems to withdraw from us. There are times where it feels like God leaves us. We sense this coldness in our relationship. Our prayers don't seem to reach to His ears. And definitely, even if He's hearing us, He's not responding. And we grow afraid and frightened. And this is the experience that David is showing us in this text. The first stanza, there are three stanzas in this, in this psalm of six verses. They're neatly divided in verses for us in the English Bible. Two verses apiece. The first two verses... Um, can be described as the cry of abandonment. The second uh, section, verses 3 through 4, can be uh, understood as the call of dependence. And the final stanza, verses 5 through 6, can be described as the confirmation of character. So you have the cry of abandonment and the call of dependence and the confirmation of character. And in these verses, it's interesting, and many have noted this for years, it's been noted, that there are five lines in the Hebrew first stanza. There are four lines in the Hebrew second stanza, and then there are three lines in the final stanza. And in this descending order, what, God's, what David seems to be saying is, he's disquieted of his soul. He's desperate in the beginning. And he, as the psalm continues, as he continues in prayer, that that unquieted feeling settles. And finally, when he turns to rejoice in God's character, it is completely at peace. So we see a move from this uh, disquieted, stormy season of life to a season of prayer where his heart begins to settle and finally into complete calm and trust and resigning in the, God, in the fact that God is God in the final two verses. And this is an experience that, as I said, is not just reserved for just the few, but most all of us, if you live long enough, will have the sense of abandonment. And when it happens to you, you feel all alone. You know, in uh, the Christian world, it's, it's, as I said earlier, it's not, uh, not often talked about, is it? Why? Because we've been infiltrated with the doctrine uh, that the life of the Christian is to be abundant. And it's to be a, a life of ease and comfort and reward and blessing. And if I'm living right, and you know, if I'm doing all the things I'm expected to do, then everything's going to be great for me. That's kind of the doctrine that's popular in our day. And so if you feel like if you come to the, uh, the time before Sunday school to drink coffee and eat donuts and somebody says, how you doing? It, you feel like if I say, I just don't even know where God is in my life right now. You feel like, what, that person <clears throat> kind of 
uh, stammers, stutters, and begins to think, uh, I don't know really what to do with you, and you kind of feel alien-like, and everybody's, all eyes are on you, and what you sense is that they think I'm not really a Christian. If I had more faith, it wouldn't feel this way. But that's not at all the truth, is it? Here David is. In 1 Samuel 13, the Bible says he is a man after God's own heart. I don't know about you, but that is an amazing statement. And yet, here he is in Psalm 13 saying, How long? How long will I suffer in this way? This is a very acute suffering that's over a long period of time. It's over a long period of time, this sense of abandonment. It's not usually in the conditions and situations of life where real impact happens immediately and hard and and is, is severe all in one blow. This is the kind of suffering that stretches over months and years, not just one little season. Usually, like Job, if we look at Job's life, usually when the Christian is hit right in the mouth, as I like to say, busted in the teeth, got the bloody lip and the bloody nose, their first response is, typically really good. They bow up and they say, God is good and I'm going to stand with God. But if that suffering continues, as it did in Job's life, you know, when Job was first hit with all of the suffering that he suffered, what did he say? I came from my mother's womb naked and I'm going to return naked to the ground. Blessed be the name of the Lord when He gives and when He takes away. Right? That's his initial response. Shall we, he asked his wife, shall we not receive good from the hand of the Lord and then also this suffering? Shall we not receive it also? This is the way he responds at the beginning. But where do we find him in the middle of the book? In total despair. Because the abandonment that he felt over time as he sat and he meditated on his suffering and he didn't find relief, that's when abandonment sets in. So, It's not in the initial moments of suffering that abandonment typically hits us. It's over the long haul as we continue to suffer and God continues to seemingly not listen to us. And there are greater and lesser degrees of this abandonment that we feel. Uh, You know, I I, uh, am a a child that that suffered abandonment. Some of you also suffered that. My father chose to leave our family when I was just a little baby. And that marks you. It's not, it's, not, it's not a grief that hits you all at one time. It's, it's kind of the impact that shapes you over time. It, it, it has ripple effects throughout all of your relationships over time. That sense of, I don't have a father, really impacts how you relate to others and how you think they're relating to you. That's a, that's a real phenomenon. And some of you have experienced that. Others of you have experienced the abandonment of, of children. As they've walked away from you in their older years and they will have nothing to do with you any longer. And you've sensed that sense of that real grief that comes from that. I think of those who have suffered even worse fates than we have suffered. Uh, One of the books I read early in my Christian life spoke to Psalm 13 in a real way and put it in picture form for me. Um, Evidence Not Seen is a book I would recommend to you. It's not a real hard book. It's a biography, uh, kind of an autobiography written by Darlene Dabler Rose. And her and her husband served the Lord on the mission field during World War II in Indonesia. And they were captured by the Japanese. Her husband was forced away into another uh, male internment camp, concentration camp. She went with the women and the children. They weren't allowed to stay together. And so she suffered through that. And as you read the book, what you come into contact with is a woman who's suffering 
over the long term. She's been in the camp for a long time. She's beginning to physically suffer. Pain has entered her life. Sickness has entered her life. She had many fevers and many episodes of, of just uh, wasting away, lack of food, and heat in the, as they worked in the, in the camp. She became so sick at one point that, the, that they would not let her out of her cell. She was kept in her cell even when the other women got to go onto the ground and walk around. She was kept out and she would watch them. She said, you know, without books and without anything to read, what you watched was the drama of the camp. That's what entertained you. So she was sitting there watching, and there was a, a, a sentry walking, keeping guard over the women. And he, she noticed every time he turned his back on this one Indonesian lady that had been put in there for some small misdemeanor crime, the Japanese had put her in this prison camp, she... She, every time the guard would walk away from her, she would in, inch over towards the, the perimeter of the yard. And then when he would turn again, she would stop. Then when he'd turn away, she would inch over. And so she became enthralled in this, like a, like a TV drama almost. Where is she going? What is she doing? She must have somebody she's going to talk to or pass something over or receive something from. So she watched her intently. Finally, the woman got to the edge of the yard. And from in the vine, she reached in and pulled out a bunch of bananas and stuck them in her sarong. And then she, she walked around the yard like all the other, and, and she had those bananas. And, and Darlene Dabler Rose and describe the, the, the abandonment she felt. That here I am. I've served God. I've given my life away. I've lost my husband. He's probably dead. And here I am so sick, I can't even leave this, leave this cell. And here this woman is. She doesn't know who God is. She has no relationship with the Lord. She doesn't love Jesus. And she gets bananas. I don't, I don't get anything. And she turned away from the door. She fell to her face and she began to cry out to the Lord. A lot like David does in our psalm. How long is, is the way she, she began? How long will I suffer this way? God, please, could you just give me one banana? I don't want a whole bunch of bananas like she has. I just want one banana. If you love me, just give me one banana. But she immediately, as she prayed that prayer, began to say, well, God can't give me a banana because I don't have any family. I don't have anyone to give me a banana. I can't ask a guard to give me bananas because if I ask them and they get found out, they'll be killed. And I wouldn't dare ask the little Indonesian grandpa who comes and stays with us at night because he would probably do it and they would catch him and, they, and she began to justify her mind. There's no way I can get a banana. She even began to say to herself, God, I know you're not going to give me a banana and it's okay. I really want a banana, but I know you're not going to give me a banana. The sense of abandonment. She was living it and experiencing it. Finally, there was a, a, a Japanese superior who came. And when they came into the cell blocks, all the doors were open and the women were to bow low. As they were being humiliated and chided and derided by these, uh, by these Japanese soldiers, they were to bow to them in respect and honor. The, common, uh, the commandant of the camp came through and one of the men that came through with him she had had a previous relationship with him. She knew him. He came into her cell and she she was caught off guard. She wasn't expecting him. And he asked her, just looking at her, he said, you're really sick, aren't you? And she said, yes, I'm very sick. And he turned to leave the room, and she was so overwhelmed by getting to see this man that she knew she forgot to bow. She didn't bow down in respect to him. And so he left, and the other soldiers saw that she didn't bow. And when the door closed, she said, Lord, not only are you not going to give me a banana, 
But now you're going to let me be tortured because they're going to come again. They're going to discipline me harshly because I didn't bow in respect. How could you let me forget? I've worked all these years to remember what I'm supposed to do. And now in my sickness, I've forgotten. And you're not listening to me. And she was just belly aching to God. She felt abandoned. Then a little while, the door flung open and she struggled to her feet. And she expected the worst. Here they've come to drag me off, to punish me for my lack of respect. And in through the door came a bunch of bananas cast at her feet. She was overwhelmed. They closed the door. She sunk down, tears streaming. She began to count. God had not sent her one banana. God had sent her 92 bananas. She felt abandoned. She felt left. She felt as if God had not held up his end of the bargain. But our God is a God of love. Not just any kind of love, but steadfast, faithful love. Our God is a God that keeps his promises. She had those 92 bananas and she just couldn't believe it. She began to give them to the the, the night, one of the funny things is she gave it to this night guard who was an Indonesian who also was treated pretty badly, although he went in prison, but he was abused by the... And he was so bold, he got shucks uh, of banana leaves and rolled them up over bananas and roasted bananas and started giving out roasted bananas to some of the women in the camp. I mean, they kind of had a victory in that camp because God showed up. And some of you are waiting on your 92 bananas. You don't think He can give you one. You don't believe He hears anything you say. And I'm telling you, our God hears you. If you're His child, He hears you. And, and you may never know when He will arrive with the 92 bananas. My guess is it will be when you least expect it. David, in this psalm, expresses that very kind of despair. First of all, we see in the psalm the cry of abandonment. In the first two verses, he expresses this abandonment that he feels. It's very piercing. We, f- we feel abandoned because of the length of the trial. Notice he says, how long, O Lord? Not, does, not only does he say it one time, he says it four times in these two verses. How long, O Lord? The, the length of the trial The length of the trial is what's driving him to abandonment, driving him to depression. God must not be listening to me because this continues on and on and on. There's no end in sight. We feel abandoned because of the length of the trial. We feel abandoned often when we cannot connect with God. Notice the how long, O Lord, question is followed in the first two uh, parts of the verse with God. Notice, how long, O Lord... What? Will you forget me forever? He doesn't sense God is with him. He doesn't sense God is for him. He says, will you forget me forever in verse 1a. In the second part of the first verse, he says, "Hide. will you hide your face from me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? In the third, in the beginning of the third thing here in the second verse, in the first part, he says, he's having to take, notice, I take counsel in my own soul. It's not that he has counsel in God. It's not that he feels close enough to even speak with God. He just talks to himself. How long? It's almost like a prayer to oneself. 
in verse 2. I'm praying to myself. How long will it be like this? Some of you have felt that. As you've continued to pray and no answer comes, you feel like you're talking to yourself. God doesn't hear me. How long will this continue? The length of his trial and then the separation that he feels from God. He's even turned to counseling himself. We feel abandoned often when our enemies seem victorious over us. The second verse is filled with this idea that the enemies are ruling over or they're, they're having exalted positions over him. We don't know what part, part of David's life this comes from. It very well could just be a general psalm and lament of his general life. The large part of his life was spent, you have to remember, as a shepherd, rejected by his brothers, serving a king who did not care for him personally, who rejected him personally, running from that king because he was anointed with the Spirit of God to be the next king, and Saul's lost the spirit of anointing for the kingship. And in that, in that weird dynamic, Saul often tries to kill him. Saul persecutes him and chases him from Jerusalem. He spends a good bit of his life running, separated from all that he loves and all that he knows. And after he becomes a king, it doesn't end. You think, well, I've become the king. I'm coronated. I'm now on the throne. All will be good now. And then he falls under the attack of his son, Absalom. And again, forced from the city. So here, we, we don't know what part of his life it comes from. It most likely is just a lament that came from his whole life. How long will my enemies be exalted over me? God, you, you promised victory. You promised that I would rule and reign in Jerusalem and that my, my, my sons would rule and reign in Jerusalem. And yet, I'm on the run, constantly feeling abandoned and left. The cry of abandonment often comes because we feel like our enemies have victory over us. But secondly, in the second section, we have to consider the call of dependence. What does he do when he feels this way? And this is key. This separates Christians from non-Christians. I'm just going to be blunt with you. Non-Christians go through the feeling of abandonment also, and they turn to worldly pursuits. If they're abandoned by their family, they often turn to work. And so they can feel successful and feel accepted in their work. If they're abandoned by their friends, they will often turn away from friendships into a very solitary life and pursuit of their own families, rejecting the friends and rejecting out external relationship. What does a Christian do? In this moment of despair and in this moment of abandonment, the Christian turns to God. He calls out out of dependence on God. We must turn to God in our abandonment. We can't turn to anything else. Verse 3 says, consider. He's asking God. He's calling out to God. Consider and answer and turn your face to me. It, you know, give me the light that only you can give so that I live and not die. His call, and his call out independence is very simple. Consider me, answer me, and bless me. Consider me, answer me, and bless me. He's bold. In your abandonment, if you shrink away from God and you turn to other things, you will never find fulfillment. You will never find satisfaction. You will never find rest and peace. Your only hope in abandonment is to turn to your Father and to call out to Him to remember you, consider me, answer me, and bless me. 
It seems so contrary to what we experience, but that's what we're called to do. We plead with God to answer our prayer in the first part of verse 3. Answer me. It's, it's almost like a, a child that um, has asked the Father for so many blessings and so many gifts and has received none of them, but then finally, sincerely cries out, Will you not answer? It's desperate, it's dependent, it's weak. This prayer is not a triumphal prayer. This is a prayer of weakness and brokenness. It expresses complete and utter dependence on God. Look at the second part of verse 3. If you don't give me light for my eyes, I will sleep the sleep of death. If you don't answer me, God, I will die. I will die. So often, I just have to say, so often in my own life, and I think probably in your own life, and rather than in the moment of abandonment turning to God, we turn to ourselves and we turn to other things and we become self-sufficient and independent. This is the recipe for disaster, not the rest recipe for healing. We live in a society that uh, has two things. One, it has over-dependence. We, we've trained children to be overly dependent on parents because it makes parents, and I, just, I know I'm getting in your kitchen here, uh, but just hear me. We live in a culture where we have trained children to be overly dependent on parents because it makes parents feel significant. It has nothing to do with loving our children. Matter of fact, do not even say that. That's a lie. And your kid knows it's a lie. It's not about them. It's all about you. And you feel significant because when little Johnny scrapes his knee, he has to run to you because he has no one else. And those scraped knees turn into big problems in life, and they always run to you. And it's another chink, another, uh, excuse me, another badge that you can wear of pride. So we either suffer from that, or we suffer from complete independence. It's bootstrap theology. That's what I call it. A parent either overindulges, or they tend to tell the kid, you're, you're on your own. Sink or swim. Work your way out of it. You need help? Help yourself. You see this? What we need to be raising in the gospel is children that turn not to us primarily nor to themselves, but to God. That's what David said, does. David says, I'm in the middle of abandonment. I don't feel like God's hearing anything I say, but I'm going to ask God to hear me, to answer me, and to bless me. He does that because of his confidence in God. Look at that second part of verse 3 again. If you don't give me the light in my eyes, I will sleep unto death. Is that where you are? Or are you still in independence? You're still struggling on your own strength. We must realize that in our weakness, God is made strong. Sometimes we don't see God's strength because we're still too strong on our own. Third, after the call of dependence comes the confirmation of God's character. In verses 5 and 6, we see that God is who God is. David rests in that. We can learn, we, excuse me, we can lean, we can learn to lean on the fact that God is God. Verse 5, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. This is not schizophrenia. This is not David saying, you've abandoned me. I trust you. 
This is the real work of sanctification happening in David's life. He feels, he feels contrary to what he knows. And so he cries out to God to bring about the feeling in match and in line with his knowing. In, in verse 5, But I have trusted in your steadfast love, hath said. This is the covenant love of God. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart in your salvation. Now I want to I take just this, we end this, I want to take just a moment to detail this for you. What is hesed? What is unfailing covenant love? What is it? Listen, it is the character of God. Say, okay. You see, the problem with you and the problem with me is we're often looking at what God's doing for us in the moment. And in that looking at what He's doing for me right now in the microcosm, in the moment, I'm looking for Him to do something for me and He doesn't do it. And so I then feel abandoned. What I must do in that moment is see God's character for who God is. He is steadfast in love. He never changes. Well, I'm not experiencing it in the moment. It doesn't matter. Because God is steadfast in His love. When you suffer, do not count on what you see with your eyes or what you feel in the moment, but on His unchanging character. And if you don't know that, listen, D.A. Carson said one time, somebody said, is it hard for you? D.A. Carson's a man who suffered in his life. He's, and I won't go through all of it, but he suffered immensely in his life. And he, he, he was asked in a question and answer one time, when you suffer, does it make it hard to believe what you believe? He laughed. He audibly laughed and said, no, the only reason I've survived suffering is because I believe what I believe about God. Let me tell you, if you don't believe in a God that's unchanging, if you don't trust in a sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God right now in your good times, when the bad comes, you will crumble. Because in those bad times, in those suffering moments, there is no outward evidence that God cares anything about you. All you sense in those moments is despair and abandonment. And if all you have is this weak, puny, sorry, no good theology that so many churches are teaching that God's going to bless you because He loves you so much, this cotton candy theology known as the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. If you buy that garbage, it will fail you when you suffer. And it will leave you an agnostic or an atheist. Because you will say, all that stuff wasn't true. The Bible's not true. God's not true. David had a bedrock, sovereign Lord. He trusted Him even when he couldn't see it. Even when he had no outward evidence that God was for him, he knew God was for him. Why? Because God is God. And He is unchanging. He is unyielding. He never fails. That's what He said in the first part of verse 5. I, listen to what He says. I have trusted in not your overflowing gifts in my life. I haven't trusted in the fact that all is well in me and in my life. I have trusted in your unchanging, steadfast, unfailing love. Now, how did he know that? And that's how we're going to end today. How can you know this? Because God has revealed it to you. God has given it to you. 
win. Now, where are we in timeline of history? We are in the, the timeline under the covenant of, of, that God made with Israel. That's where David is, okay? So when we look back, we have to look back. Where does he get this steadfast love idea? Turn to Exodus. Turn to Exodus chapter 20, and we'll see this. We'll see it there, and then we're going to go forward past David to how you can trust him. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 6. God says in the Ten Commandments, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. Why? Because I don't want you bowing down to serve these man-made gods. Why? For I, the Lord, our children told us, that's in all caps, that means that's Yahweh. I am who I am. I am who I am is your Lord, your God. And I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. So to the third and fourth generations, God expresses His his judgment on those who hate Him. But, look at this, showing what? Steadfast love. That's where it comes from. That's what David's counting on when he's suffering. The fact that God has revealed Himself as one of steadfast love, unchanging love to thousands of generations. Notice His iniquity is being visited on three or four generations, but His steadfast love unto thousands of generations. What does that tell me? That tells me that God's character is great. His name is great. We are to expect that He loves us at all times. His steadfast love is expressed to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So where do we get the idea of steadfastness in God's love? God gave it to us in Exodus 20. Now, don't you don't have to turn far. Go to Exodus 33. Go to Exodus 33. So the revelation is in Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6, and then in Exodus 33, verse 19b. Moses has pled that God will not destroy Israel because God says, I'm going to destroy them. And then he says, don't do it. And God answers him. God says, okay, I won't destroy them. And then in verse 19b, look what he says. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. God says, my character is such that I will show mercy to who I will show mercy. I will show compassion to whom I show compassion. I will love who I love. In this, in this passage, we get the word said. That word, graciousness, is that same idea of love. That steadfast love. So, it's revealed to us in Moses' day that God is a God of steadfast love. We see it. We, we hear God say it about Himself. Verse chapter 34 Chapter 34, verses 6 through 9. So they have this interchange outside the, 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 the tablets where the tablets are being given. And then look what it says. The Lord descended in verse 5 and stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So God pro- proclaimed his name to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, 
It's the only time in the Old Testament God repeats his name twice. What's he saying? Listen to me. Hear me. The Lord. The Lord. A God, what? Merciful and gracious. And met has said. That means God of mercy and God of steadfast love. It's also translated gracious. The Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love. That word keeping in verse 7 means guard. It doesn't mean that he's doing something. It means he's guarding his character. God set a guard around his steadfast love for thousands of generations so they can never be questioned. God is a God of steadfast love. How did he set a guard around his steadfast love? He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So God passed before Moses and he let him see the backside of his ways, which is his steadfastness in love and mercy and grace. This is our God. Now that was revealed. Now, it was revealed in Moses. It is recognized by David in our passage. I trust your steadfast love and my heart rejoices in your salvation. I sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. How has He dealt bountifully with David? In His steadfast love. In His character. Not in His condition, but in God's character. There's nothing in David's life that would tell us that he got the easy way. He got the hard. He got the tough. He got the difficult. That's what David got. And yet he said, you've been bountifully good to me. Why? Because of this steadfast love. So we have the revelation in Moses, we have the recognition in David, and we have the reality that comes after David. The greater son of David came. And John chapter 1 tells us, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 1, exactly who this greater one than David is. John chapter 1. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word of the Lord came and dwelt with us in flesh, Jesus. And we have seen His glory. Okay, when Moses saw God's glory, what did he see? God's steadfast love. His unchanging character. His mercy and His grace. So when it says... That the Word came and dwelt in flesh among us, and we beheld His what? Glory. What did we beheld? We beheld steadfast love, faithfulness, mercy, and grace. It, glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace, steadfast love, and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was the one. This is the one. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. What did we receive? How do we now get that confidence in the character of God? Because we have Jesus Christ. 
He is the embodiment of God's steadfast covenant love. That never fails. That never fails. David had confidence in what God had revealed in the time of Moses, what he was experiencing under the covenant that God had with his people, and looking forward to the promise of the one who would come and embody the very character of God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. And when John saw it and wrote about it, he said, We have beheld God's glory, steadfast love, and unfailing mercy and grace. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of glory, great, glorious grace and truth. This is what we have seen in Jesus. And so Jesus came and, and He brought to us a greater revelation of what Moses received at the giving of the law. Moses got God's character at the law, but he didn't get the fullness of that. When did the fullness come? When Jesus came. Just so you know, I'm not off my rocker. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is, this is unbelievable. God has left us without any excuse. If you leave today saying, I don't believe in Jesus Christ, and I don't think God's steadfast in His love, that's your problem. God has not failed to bear witness of Himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. What's happening here? He's describing the ministry of the new covenant, Paul is. And he talks about the ministry of Moses. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face. Why did he do that? The children told us. Because when he saw God, he glowed like a light bulb, right? And, and he put a veil over his face to cover that. Why? Because... The Israelites couldn't gaze on God, nor did they want to look at Moses because he was so bright. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. What is the veil? Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whatever Moses is, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is gone. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. What is the glory of the Lord? Steadfast love, grace, mercy. And, that, and we are being transformed into His same image from one degree of glory to another. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. But we have re renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God told Moses, no man shall see my face for in the day he sees my face he shall surely die. But I will hide you in the rock, of the, the rock and I will pass by you. The backside of me will pass. My steadfast love will pass by you. David saw what Moses had, had done. He looked back and he saw that. And he drew confidence in his day of abandonment. And said, God hadn't left me. Why? Because God's a God of steadfast love. And he looked forward. Having looked back, he looked forward and said, There's one coming who will make all this true. John saw Jesus and said, This is him. This is the one. He's full of grace and truth. And Paul looked at Jesus and said, you want to see the face of God? 
Look at Jesus. You want to see steadfastness in love? Look at Jesus. Now I want to tell you, what's the veil? I, said, I asked it while I was reading, what's the veil? The veil is, the veil of that God is, the, the God of this world, Satan, has put over some of your eyes so that you can't believe what I just said. And there's some of you in here who won't believe it today. You will walk out saying, I don't believe that. And this is why, because you'll say, if there was a God of steadfast love and mercy, there wouldn't have been three women kept in a house for ten years. There wouldn't have been a woman who were raped and abused and brutalized for ten years if there was a God who really existed, who was steadfast in love and mercy. How can we know Him? If there was a God of steadfast love and mercy, I wouldn't have lost my child. If there was a God of steadfast love and mercy, I wouldn't have cancer. My mom wouldn't have Alzheimer's. The veil is the experience of this life, the hardness of this life, that when Moses is read and the reality of what he experienced on that mountain face, as close to face to face with God as anyone in his time had ever been, the veil that covers that from us, if it covers us, is the veil of experience. We say it's not true because it hadn't happened here and it hadn't happened here. And look over there and, and we're blinded. And then God in His great mercy sees us squirming in our own blood, our own rebellion, our own fallenness, and He sends His Spirit to lift the veil. And when He does, you see Jesus Christ and you know you have seen God in His fullness and you believe. Some of you need it to happen today. You say, well, I was sexually molested as a child. My dad beat me as a child. My friends have all left me. My business has failed. I want to tell you the only way you're going to survive it is by looking at the face of Jesus Christ. The only hope you've got is to see Him for who He really is and to believe. And so I'm calling on you right now to believe. To set aside all your, your anecdotal evidence. Anecdotal evidence that's set to the contrary and believe that Jesus is the revelation of the fullness of the steadfast love of God. And at that moment, you will not receive immediate relief from your suffering, but you will receive the grace and the goodness to go through it and to come out of the other side more like Him. Philip came to Jesus in John 12, and he said, these Greeks, they want to see. They want to experience. How did he, what, what did those Greeks come looking for? They said, we would see Jesus. They came looking for Jesus. They wanted to know God in Christ. And Jesus said, if you have seen me, what? You have seen God. You have seen the Father. Some of you need to quit looking for further revelations and further words. You need to believe the word God spoken in His Son and receive Him full of grace and truth. And rejoice in Him. Finally, rejoice in Him. Worship Him as such. Listen, our children sang for us today. And what thrills my heart about that? If you're a child here today and you're a little embarrassed, you say, singing's not my thing. Listen, singing's not my thing either. I'm not real good at it, but I know this. My heart can't help but sing to the one who has saved me. You say, I'm, not, I'm just not into singing. Singing is just not for me. You need to check where your heart is with God. David said, I will trust in the salvation of the Lord and I will sing 
of His greatness. Listen, if it's been a long time since you've sung, I'll just challenge you. Get, in the, get alone somewhere, put in a worship CD, and just sing. Just sing. It will do wonders to your heart. Sing. Trust Him. Love Him. Because He will never fail to love you in Christ.